So, uh, Artie, we're not going to do the UN Word of the Day segment because we don't really have a funny joke there. Because also you're a Debbie Downer. Well, you're trying to make jokes on climate change. It's a little too early or late. I don't know which one. Thank you, Karen. Do you want to talk to the manager also? Yeah. Ma'am, this is a Wendy's. I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Trades Planning, a podcast featuring two guys talking about trade, politics, and expat life. On today's episode, we'll update you on inflation. Is it a thing? We'll find out. Tech in China, COVID, and corporations. And later, we'll talk with Algina about how the business of customs has changed over his long career, whether our new ambitions for trade agreements make any sense on the ground. And of course, we'll get those helpful tips you've been looking for for smuggling. Coconuts. And as always, we'll have the usual listener feedback and news roundup. So without further ado, let's get into it. We're not doing that anymore. We're not saying that. I just said it. Listener feedback said, don't say it. It can't be unsaid. So okay. hold on to your hats, folks. Who wears, wears hats? Segment. Who wears hats? Now? New segment. Well, in the awards of the immortal James Brown, we're back. After a well-deserved mini hiatus, we're happy to finally be coming back to you listeners out there from the hot, sweaty confines of sunny TS Studios. You'll be happy to know that we've moved out of Rob's daughter's bedroom, trademark, and upgraded to a spacious 10th floor loft in the Petite Saconet neighborhood of Geneva. We're excited to be back, and I, for one, took this break as a good learning opportunity. We both traveled back to the U.S. for some cultural re-immersion. So before I get into it, Rob, why don't you tell us... What did you learn on your trip to the U.S.? Well, I learned that you can get a vaccination in the grocery store, but people were not lining up for it. So people are not really that interested. Of course, the whatever wave, fifth, tenth wave hadn't hit yet. So that, there's that. Also, I do love donuts. I could just tell by looking at you. <laughs> so I packed on a few extra pounds this time. Also, we were going to take a car across the a borrowed car across the country, but it got carjacked. So I thought that was another cultural experience. Which doesn't happen elsewhere i don't know i think i think it was you know something you don't experience in geneva for sure that's why they call it flyover country because you can't drive through it because everybody's cars getting jacked that was <laughs> it turned out to be the case cars were being jacked everywhere and of course we met the grand dog we don't have grandchildren yet but we have a grand dog who's bigger than me he's got a dinosaur head i also saw that you were you visited chicago i saw that video so what was it like finally visiting a big city well, the buildings are real tall, country, real, real tall. Country boy done good. <laughs> Taking pictures on the L train of being on the L train. Look, Chicago's fine, but we also visited Champaign, Illinois, where they manufacture Kraft macaroni and cheese, one of the jewels of U.S. cuisine. So what did you learn, Artie? Well, I learned that it's not a good idea to drive too slow in Manhattan. I think I've, you know, after seven years in Geneva, I've realized that maybe I've started to follow the speed limit a bit too much. Is that what happened? It but you're also what? looking out the window, shouting with a Staten Island accent at look, funny looking people. No, no, no. That wasn't me. That was the guy next to me. It was a car chase by a lady on the Manhattan Bridge who had a crowbar somehow handily in her car yeah. because I was going too slow. Really? And she started beeping. It was kind a- of a road rager by Geneva standards. Yeah, but that's pretty much everybody who's was not <laughs> from Geneva. She was from Jersey, according to the plates. Maybe now she's like, I you Staten it. Islanders, you're all really Jersey. You pretend you're from New York. I don't yeah. know, something, she said something like that, like maybe. Really? Did you? Did you? No, it was scary. So did don't, you step down? Did you step out of the automobile no, to? No, to I didn't step. I, I, she she started beeping, and I gave her like the universal. You know, like how the Italians do with the hands. I was like, "What yeah. is it? What am I doing to bother you?" And out came 
a finger. I won't say which finger, okay? But a finger came up. Done. So I returned with another gesture, right? A a More gesture. Let's call it. I'm trying to think which one that could have. And been. the crowbar came out. Yeah. Did it? And okay. it came out, and I literally, it was actually funny. When you inside, could, she took it, she kept it inside the in car. In the car, like to show me, I've got a crowbar, and I think I, you know. Like and maybe she, she's a, she's a, maybe she's a. Anyway, so I told my brother to take a video car, or a photo. She's probably a carpenter. I told my brother to take a photo of her license plate, and this is where you see the generational gap, because he's eight years younger. Yeah. He pulled out his phone, and instead of taking a video, he started a Snapchat by accident. Like, that was his first. <laughs> so a, so after this whole thing. I mean, what are you going to do with this? Is after this car chase. Perfect material. After this car okay. chase on the on the Manhattan Bridge ended yeah. and our adrenaline stopped, I said, okay, what was her license plate number? He said, oh, I didn't take a – I Snapchatted it. And apparently on Snapchat, it just disappears. Anyway, so that's what I learned. I learned don't drive slowly. In New York City. Don't follow the speed limit. That's a weird thing for you to have to learn. The hard way. And because women will come after you. With crowbars. That's that is a new lesson. Some, that's but a, that's not a, all. That is a new lesson. That's a twenty twenty one kind of lesson. Good for her. Don't crowbar me, bro. No, good for her. Yeah, and she's breaking that barrier. You can you can also be a road raging ass and be a woman. So that's what I learned. Also, I learned that Mackenzie Scott, the lady formerly known as Jeff Bezos' wife, is just giving money away like it's free candy. Four billion at a time? Yeah, a, a lot of billion at a time, basically. She's become the biggest philanthropist in the world, and she actually puts her money where her mouth is, meaning out of her pocket. She doesn't put her money in a fund of a fund to then maybe one day give it away, but also get a tax write-off. She's actually just giving it away. None of it has come to trade. directed play. at me? I mean, if the shoe, you're, you sound kind of guilty. <laughs> I guess that was going to be my, my next, you know, is the trade planning foundation on that big list? Because I know a lot of people were surprised. They're like, what? I it, just got a hundred million bucks. It's a secret list. So we okay. won't know until we actually receive a huge, a big chunk of cash to expand. Do you think she knows business? where to find us? Do we need to send an email or an app? That's, that's right. If you are listening, we'll mention this again a few times throughout McKenzie. Used to be, we would say, Jeff, please sponsor this segment. Not anymore. No. This is now a, now a not-for-profit venture. It is actually a not-for-profit. It is. It's no profit. There's no profit here, we, Mackenzie. We, yeah, we're just we're profiting with we're expanding people's minds, our own minds. So she can find us at trade.splaining at gmail.com. Yes, and also we? on Twitter, Instagram, and the other things. But before we talk about that, let's just jump into episode twenty-two. Yes, which, which listeners will be happy to know is the atomic number of titanium wow also what my watch is made of it's also the age that rob realized he would finally get a job so he went to graduate school just to put it off that bit longer and i guess it's also your next birthday so you're going to turn 22 pretty soon now here in my head it's always my 22nd (laughs) birthday so we'll start off with everyone's favorite most of our listeners will know if you're a new listener we start this off with our listener feedback segment where listeners will write us in words of wisdom if they're listening yeah. most of them are listening i imagine why don't you start us off rob because i know you're just raring to go we did see uh, one of our old friends raymond who actually has appeared in the podcast he said he's still not listened to it after 22 episodes we were kind of pulling for him maybe having listened to it at least once so is that that's kind of like a feedback of a non-listener at least he's honest but he also he's expecting us to do this in swiss german which is not happening <laughs> probably i think you just put ali on the, on the yeah, end it's of trade explaining ali then i met two people who said they had been listening but had missed a few episodes and i'm doing air quotes around that does that mean maybe they listened for five minutes one time and gave up i'm not sure exactly how to interpret they knew we had a podcast put it that way i guess that's better than nothing better than nothing yeah is exactly how i would describe that we should also mention actually on a positive front we had Eric Schmidt from Australia told us that he recently found our podcast after an episode we did with the trade guys from CSIS. And he said he really enjoyed it and found it very entertaining to listen to. 
especially all the kebab talk had him missing his life back in Europe. He just wanted to point out one thing that we mentioned that Australia is pursuing the FTAs with the US and UK, but Australia had an FTA, in fact, with the US since 2005. I'd like to point out that that was actually just Rob misspeaking. So he did not mean to say that the FTA with the US was being negotiated. He must have meant the EU. We've gone back and confirmed the script didn't appear in the script, or the script was perhaps no, Rob. Now you're just corrected now later. You're, you're gaslighting me. In the recording, I got it wrong, but the script was correct. But it's okay. It, it's it's the spirit of the message you wanted to send. Not don't equipment. It's recording equipment. It's yeah. uh, garbled. You know who blames their recording equipment? A bad podcaster. Anyway, one <laughs> listener also wrote us that it was a great pleasure listening to our most recent podcast episode, commented on the great analysis and discussions about international affairs and economic development, mixed with that witty sense of humor with my partner. He was writing this to me. So he meant you, Rob. He didn't say the old guy this time. Oh, that's that's excellent. And what uh, the person was applying for a job? No, no. He was just writing a nice email to me. Fantastic. So we should be happy about that. We're very happy. You're no longer the old guy. I don't know. I don't think he can absolve me of that. Well then, let's just jump right into this episode's news roundup, or what longtime listeners know we like to call the what went wrong the past two months the trade planning was not recording. Yes, and we're going to start off with something that we've almost piled it into the ground. This is the concept of inflation. So we have new news on that. Is inflation a thing or is it not a thing? Well, listeners will be happy to know that I won't make any mention of upward or downward inflationary pressures on this episode. <laughs> so you're welcome. You're never going to get hired by the Fed. It's no, over. No, but anyway, the reopening of this global economy has led to a surge in demand for all types of commodities, something we've talked a lot about, particularly from China. And this has had further knock-on effects on the price of containers that carry them. So we've talked to Jan Hoffman in the past and this has been a recurring theme. So the FAO has put out lots of reports on this, saying that the price of global food imports will go up significantly this year. At the same time, though, they came out with, I guess this is good news, they came out with a report in July saying that global food prices declined. So go figure. Yeah. So I think finally that pressure, upward pressure on food prices. You said it. You is, did it. It's okay. now been relieved. Okay. Thank you. Thank ah. you for that relief. What's a relief? You not... So it's transitory. Segment. It is transitory. So altogether, this did not paint a good picture for consumers. So we'll see if that July food decline holds. But one group who has been gaining are trading firms. These are firms that historically have sourced, stored, and shipped food goods and foodstuffs and who have these transport and storage logistics networks and data and relationships needed to control the supply and demand of, of specific commodities. And so even up until recently, these, these companies were not doing actually that great up until COVID hit. And the increase in volatility between supply and demand coupled with climate change has sort of been a boon to them because they these are companies that feed off of that mismatches between supply and demand. So not only have they been doing incredibly well the past year, they've begun investing in things like food additive products and things like this, which go into the products that they've have traditionally been selling. And this is sort of increasing their ability to offset these off-cycle supply and demand fluctuations, which we're seeing become a bigger and bigger part of trade and international commerce. So increased rainfall in Switzerland, for example, the past two months has led to people already predicting that 2021 will be a really bad year for wine, for example. So this is something that we're really upset about. Something every, every year is a bad year for Swiss wine, but I don't agree. But some do say that. If you're French. <laughs> So again, this is just a further example and really highlights how how this combination of, of climate change and the impacts of COVID, so which we've talked about intermittently throughout the podcast since it began, has really altered the flow of trade and, and commerce patterns. And it's probably will 
make it permanent for the foreseeable future, at least. These big companies with deep pockets who have all the logistics you described, they are good at managing volatility. They're good at profiting seeing, off of it as well. Profiting off of it, seeing it. I mean, in a way, they also there there's a market reason they exist in order to you know close gaps in the market. So exactly. they have supply when you have demand, but they also have the money. And they have the skills and they have, as you say, the networks to manage this. And and you're absolutely right. Their margins were being, as we also talked about, because there was more direct trade between big companies, say Nestle, and uh, suppliers. So it's 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 open question how well they'll do in the future. But you're right. They're also evolving into things that will continue to be profitable. I think it's just another case of, when you put it that way, it's another case of the rich getting richer, to use a overused expression. We're seeing this in tech with the biggest companies just gaining massive market share and, and selling products like like crazy just because of COVID, while other companies who who are not traditionally in that space have been have been struggling. So it's just a continuation of the same pattern from my perspective. Yeah, and I think it also causes more pressure. So these are big trading firms we've all known about. They don't have a they don't really have a good name. A lot of them are based in Geneva. We've talked about that before. And there's going to be more and more pressure when they see companies like these doing well out of volatility to regulate. I think it's the the, the pressure is going to become even greater when this is about food. Right. No, it's, it's a truly important point. So it'll be interesting to see how this unfolds over the next 12 to 18 months. So you mentioned climate and its effect on these commodity trading firms. There's another industry that's also having a good year, bad year. That, that's uh, good year tires, but we're not talking about <laughs> there's, them. There's another, there's another set of companies that's actually suffering due to, to climate. Tell me about that. And everybody will be really sad to hear that that's insurance companies. Insurance. So they are not doing well. 2021 is now officially the worst start to a year for natural disaster claims in over a decade. So a combination of wildfires, winter storms in the U.S., tornadoes in Europe. Yes, you read that right. And obviously, most recently, flooding that we've seen in, in Central Europe has helped deal an estimated $40 billion with a B of blow to global insurers in the first half of 2021. So the Swiss RE, a reinsurance group, have said that extreme weather caused by climate change in these disaster-prone areas has just driven up the risk of insurance claims much, much higher and increased the chance of losses. They also go on to say that the rising costs reflect sort of an increased threat to the insurance sector as extreme weather combines with this population growth that they talked about. They do say that they have enough in the kitty from, <laughs> from, soaking, us from soaking us for the past years. forever to last into the next uh, 10 to 20 years. But that depends on if things don't get worse. Yeah. I think the, the thing that we have to say here is that insurance companies in some ways and the way insurance companies are regulated can even make things worse. For instance, in the US, you can get insurance because of government subsidies to build near water and to rebuild near water and Staten Island it's an island. Would be one, would be one of these places. I'm sorry, Long Island. No man is a Staten Island. So, so I think the way insurance is regulated and the way insurance works could help either make us more adapted to climate change or less so. And right now, a lot of insurance is being paid out for massive disasters. And is it just going to be paid out to rebuild the same way? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Often it is. I think we will see a change in, in how, how they administer the payouts. So you can only build back better. For example, you actually have to build back better, I yeah. should put it. Right? Literally. Build yeah. back better and more ecological. Or, diff or differently or somewhere else. Yeah, just don't buy near the beach, as Mario and Thompson once told us. Yeah, exactly. That's beachfront property is not the thing. <laughs> and I guess we should mention, since we're talking about insurance and climate, that 
the biggest story in trade we're not talking about is climate. And the UN climate report for 21 came out and it says something the UN doesn't say very often. It uses the word unequivocal. We never say that in the UN. I was I was shocked, really I'm, shocked. I'm unequivocally shocked at that. <laughs> so apparently the humans are having a big effect on climate. Who knew? <laughs> and they're saying every region's affected and there's going to be uh, concurrent and multiple changes in climatic impact drivers. What that means is everything's going to go wrong at once. And we see that. <laughs> we see this in some places. I mean, if you watch the Weather Channel, and people are doing this in the U.S., so you see the Weather Channel, it's terrifying. I'm only laughing to stop from crying at this point. So, I mean, obviously everything in trade that we now know is going to be scrambled in some ways. So we're going to see even polar ice caps melt. You're going to have a new trade route. We see, of course, seasonal crops are going to change seasons, and it's going to change who can win in the market at different times. And this will have a huge effect, of course, on commercial dynamics. So if you get mm. this right... Until the world actually ends, you're going to be able to make some some big money. And uh, I think companies right now are thinking about how to how to do that. And I guess transportation companies, we'll talk to a guy from Maersk in the, in the coming weeks, are actually thinking a lot about how this is going to affect their business. Yeah, I guess Waterworld was historical. <laughs> Our future. <laughs> yeah, was it the biggest flop? Je suis Kevin Costner. We were all Kevin Costners <laughs> swimming to Mount Everest. So we're talking about disruptions and volatility in the market. So on the COVID front, big companies, as you, I mean, you kind of alluded to earlier, were seem to be making hay during this. How's that? How's that happening? Exactly as I, I maybe I jumped the shark. The rich world uh, is bouncing back from the COVID shock that we all felt much more quickly than, than other countries. And heavyweights continue to extend their lead. So they're spending more on investments, acquisitions, snapping up the best talent, employing big data and leveraging new technologies as we enter a, a post-COVID sort of economic landscape. So economists have been talking about how this gap between large and small companies has helped to explain poor productivity growth before the pandemic. So traditionally, we talk about how innovation spread from company to company, helped the broader economy. But what we've seen in recent years, and this has been, as I said before, accentuated uh, during COVID is that big companies have accrued even more outsized rewards due to their scale. And a large number of small companies have just sort of struggled to keep up or struggled to exist uh, altogether. So not only mom and pop shops, but even the small companies that we've historically thought of. So unless you're in tech, basically, you're not doing that great. The IMF, funnily enough, warned in March that due to the pandemic, this industry concentration has increased in advanced economies as much as it did in the first 15 years through 2015. So with every action comes a reaction. So what we're seeing now is this is setting up a, a fight in the U.S., at least in terms of regulation. So antitrust regulators and the Biden administration are pushing for new policies to promote competition in the U.S. in the economy and that they're warning too few players are controlling a larger and larger share of the market. The EU is also a, a big, big antitrust regulator in their own right, and they're reevaluating how to implement policies in the digital economy. Something else we'll talk about later on is how China has now jumped into this in different and unique ways to them. Yeah, I think you're you're right. And people have been saying over and over again, even over these past 15 years, that concentration in the U.S. industry has been going up. Even we've mentioned it. And the returns to capital have gone up. The number, the the level of contestability of different markets, so can somebody get in there, has gone down. And yet U.S. Uh, competition regulators have done very little. So they've done almost literally nothing. I think if you if you look at it from 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 a economy wide level, of course they've done you know different things here and there. So the antitrust was basically put but on Ayn, a shelf. But Ayn Rand said government is bad, at least in that concentration. No, good in that novel she wrote. 
once. Well, in fact, we know that uh, you, you, if you've ever been bored, that it was Bork and those guys who escalated. Then they came up with this concept, this concept of contestability. So they say, even if there's only two companies in a given market, how, what's the possibility and what's the ease of somebody else getting into the market? Mm-hmm. And if they determined that it was easy to get into the market, they would take no action. And this basically set back or froze antitrust regulation for quite a long time. So you remember they used to break up the the uh, Bell system and mm. so on, IBM as well. Now we're in a situation where they're waking up again and they're saying... I actually just read about that in a book growing up because my entire life has been the opposite. You don't even know how to dial a phone. I don't even know how to dial bor- a phone. Being borked is just commonplace. A confirmation hearing. Yeah, that's called lis- Yeah, it's called <laughs> just living. So I think you're right. And I think that, let's see what happens in the U.S. I think it's it's we can jump right to the, to the discussion of China because the same thing's happening. So mm. in a way, they followed the same model the U.S. had done. They had they allowed quite a lot of leeway for big companies to develop. Those big companies, let's say, copied. U.S. models, but now in, in some ways have exceeded them, have, have done better. So we see companies like WeChat who have multiple functionalities built in and have an enormous effect on Chinese consumers' lives. They can buy, they can hail a car, make payments. So they let all this happen and the companies have done well, but they've also developed an incredible amount of influence in the economy. And in some ways, they've also had this anti-competitive behavior as well. They've caused companies to go out of business. They've had they've caused companies to have to come onto their own platforms, the, the Alibabas of the world. And this has taken, the, the Chinese government has taken notice. Now, some people say it's political. Some people say it's economic. But the, the Chinese regulators have definitely turned towards what they're calling consumer protection. So they've cracked down on some of the bigger companies. They cracked down on the IPO of Ant. They have pub- they have punished uh, Chinese companies who've listed on U.S. exchanges, so and they've lost uh, hundreds of billions worth of value over the past few months. I think so. They're coming at it. They're looking at the same problem and coming at it from a slightly different, perhaps tougher, and certainly more rapid Mm. reaction. And antitrust takes forever in the US. It's a legal process and so on. The Chinese, of course, have a a different system. But in in many ways, I think they're dealing very much the same set of dynamics. Right. But I think the counterpoint to that, the people who say that there are ulterior motives behind this, that it's not only about competition policy. In many ways, I find it quite persuasive. The one thing most of these econ- these companies have in common, if you're talking about Jack Ma, is that they went awry of the government itself, if you will, to use the term more broadly. So this is in a way getting them in line and not acting too American, right? Where Elon Musk can just tweet away endlessly and without repercussion. Manipulate stock value, for instance. For instance. Yeah. <laughs> and the SEC is just out golfing or gone fishing. We'll see actually, they actually have open investigation, but that's for another episode. So I'm, I, again, like most things on this podcast, I tend to fall somewhere in the middle. I don't think that it's as bad as people have pointed out, but I also don't think it's as egalitarian or... Yeah, I mean, so there's some political motive, but there's also a real economic issue there. And so it's hurting the the behavior of these companies in the U.S. arguably is hurting consumers and arguably they're getting outsized profits. They're, They're getting rents out of it. It's the same in China. So if we say, well, they're authoritarians and we're not, let's say they're dealing with the same dynamic. And we, you read articles uh, over and over again to say China's much less monolithic than you think. There's a lot of dynamics within the party and so on. So I think it's, I think. What it tells us is that this is an issue that's serious and it's an issue that's facing economies all across. And the Europeans would be facing it if they had any tech companies. Nokia? Hey, hey, Spotify (laughs) is finished. Get your hands off my Spotify. No, they're fine. They're not finished yet. 
So we talked about the effects of climate. We talked about antitrust situations. We talked about the rich getting richer. This all speaks to the possibility of regulation and the possibility of doing better in value chains. So I think that consumers want it. The Europeans are pushing for it. And we've got another example here where even in countries where they manufacture goods, in this case, Cambodia, they're also pushing to get buying companies to do the right thing. So in this case, in, in the pandemic, many of the brands that you love, when they cut their contracts, the Cambodian companies that were working for them fired a lot of people or furloughed a lot of people and didn't government mandated compensation. And the Cambodian government said, that's okay, you don't have to because you're facing difficult economic situation. And these, this group of unions and companies and institutions that work with them said the amount of compensation not paid is in the hundreds of millions, $390, $400 million. So they're asking these, these brands to pay out. And they're saying, go beyond just the manufacturer, the company that's sitting in Cambodia. We actually are reaching out to you, H&M, you, Adidas, you, Gap, to say you're responsible for what's happening here. Mm. You can't be at arm's length. Now, of course, the companies say, well, they did what they could to mitigate. They said it's not their fault. But these are these are people in Cambodia asking major brands to enforce Cambodian labor law effectively because all of these compensations are in law and should have been paid by the Cambodian companies. I think it's an interesting test case to see whether this kind of pressure can actually produce payout. And it's, it's, it would be a massive a massive transfer. $400 million would be very, very significant. Also, it's an interesting test of who has precedence. Is it are Cambodian companies within their right to, to extract these types of concessions from from companies that they supply. I, I don't hold out too much hope. I mean, if I if you put a gun to my head, I would say that they will just say but force majeure or but COVID. I think legally they have no they have no leg to stand on at all. Mm. It's it's simply pressure mm. on the companies to do the right thing. Right. And contractually they're not required to. If they're going to put pressure on anybody, it would be on the Cambodian subcontracting companies themselves. And that's probably blood from a stone. Algina is the president and co-founder of CT Strategies based in Washington, D.C. Prior to establishing CT, Al served as an assistant commissioner for international trade at the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. My old job. Al is a native of New York City and received a Bachelor of Arts degree from Queens College and is a graduate of the Office of Personal Management's Executive Development Program and the Harvard Kennedy School of Government's Senior Executive Fellows Program. Or as the French say, Harvard. Al lives in Virginia with his wife and has a daughter who lives in the District of Columbia. All right, Al. Thanks for joining us. Uh, let's just jump into the first question. And so, so you've been you've been doing this for quite a long time. And what do you think, in in your opinion, has changed most in customs or border protection, generally speaking, since when you first started out? Apart from the the staple pushing pulling apart. So it's an interesting question, actually, because it's unique to the U.S. and some other countries. It was mostly revenue focused. The enforcement side was primarily narcotic interdiction. Well, you fast forward and you go beyond the 9-11, which completely transformed the agency into a focus of anti-terrorism, stopping the terrorists, stopping the weapon of mass effect. And then also this whole evolution of e-commerce also has gone from just simply examining shipments. You now went to the just-in-time delivery. I was just listening to a, a symposium this morning by CBP, and the volume of small packages is just overwhelming the agency right now. And a whole new way of doing business has to be rethought in order to keep up with the way people want their goods. They want it yesterday. That's just the way it's going to be going forward. One of the things maybe that's changed or changing, or at least we're reading more about, is 
how the U.S. and other countries are starting to think more about enforcement of trade restrictions. So we hear about like withhold release orders, stopping products manufactured using forced labor. We hear even Congress is appropriating more money for customs enforcement. So do you think there's a real change coming with that? Is that kind of the future for... Well, I think customs in the United States, absolutely. And that change came in, in February of 2016 when the Trade Facilitation Trade Enforcement Act was put in place. So when you had the Legacy Customs Service and in March of 2003, when the United States created the Department of Homeland Security and Customs now became Customs and Border Protection, well, up to that point, so you say for 12 years, the agency was operating on antiquated, outdated policy laws and regulations. And if somebody was to go look at the Trade Facilitation Trade Enforcement Act of 2015, it lays out about 100 mandates. The U.S. Customs and Border Protection has more than half of them. And in there, it specifically addresses an emphasis on enforcement. That's where it addresses forced labor, anti-dumping, countervailing duty, IPR, counterfeiting. So it's just taking the agency time to get to a point that they're fully able to meet that mandate. So yes, in answer to the question, I think there has been a significant emphasis on trade enforcement, specifically things like forced labor, and it's going to continue. And how much of this can you catch? I mean, I think we, we talked in an earlier conversation, you were talking about how many shipments are actually reviewed, because we, we read a lot about trade agreements, and they sound black and white, either this is allowed or it isn't. But how many of these things do you actually review? And how much of the stuff do you think you catch? Catch very minimal relative to the sheer volume. I mean, that's just the honest truth. I think any CBP official will tell you. The Office of National Drug Control Policy says we maybe interdict 15% of the drugs that are being imported into the U.S. illegally. And making drug seizures, having done both, is significantly easier than making trade fraud cases or interdicting trade violations, because a lot of times you're encountering something that might be legitimate, but you have no idea if it was made by forced labor. But what you're looking at is something that's manufactured almost identical now with the advent of computerizations. Years ago, you could tell the stitching was off, the zipper was off, but now can you really tell when you're examining it in the field that it's the material that's a cheaper quality, but because it was made by a computer-generated machine, it still has that same exact logo branding image. So it is pretty complex and it is very challenging. So you identify these, is there other guys somewhere who are doing this on the basis of intelligence? So they, or is it because somebody brings a complaint or how would I know if a product is made with forced labor or not? Obviously, as you say, you can't tell from a physical inspection. One of the reasons I'm asking is not, it's not because I want to get some products in under the, under the wire, but it's also because, because we see trade agreements now that might even be more ambitious in a way. So they might say they want to allow sustainable like a sustainably produced product. And we saw this in an agreement between uh, European countries and Indonesia, for instance. We want a, a sustainable palm oil versus a not sustainable palm oil to get a different tariff rate. And the complexity for the U.S., I guess, is already high. But then if you think smaller countries trying to do this through trade agreements, I wonder if that's too challenging or what, what kind of level of ambition is, is even practical. In the United States, the U.S. will, will negotiate all trade agreements. And then we 
always raise our concern is how do you enforce that trade agreement? So how are you going to determine that when it's being inspected as it's being imported into the U.S.? You know, trying to enforce whether peanuts are actually originating from one country or another country. So there's this kind of trade-off between what might be a level of ambition of a negotiator and what might be really possible to enforce. And then you guys have to then look at paperwork also and say, is the paperwork right or not? And trust that. Yeah, the language becomes a little more challenging and difficult when the due date is coming up. Let's say the president agreed or somebody made a statement that this trade agreement will be done by such and such a date. And so up front early on, there's a lot of negotiations. They're including the customs service, or in this case, customs border protection. Are you good with this language? Are you good with that language? Is this like feasible? And then all of a sudden, there's like one week to get everything done. And it should really take like several more months. And then all of a sudden, you live with certain language that we're back at the agency saying, who agreed to this? And how are we supposed to do this now? But now it's already been signed. So I think that's a good segue into the next question that touches on technology. So how do you think, in your opinion, technology has been shaping the business that you're in? We hear a lot about borderless borders, quote unquote, in the case of North Ireland and Brexit being mentioned. Do you think that those are closer to reality in our near future? And uh, is that something that should be welcomed? You, you, you're talking about opening packages one at a time and just the sheer number of packages that we're getting probably culpable for for that some of that myself with the amazon prime deliveries but do you think technology helps or should help i think technology is an absolute must i mean i'm going to date myself but back in the early 80s we didn't have x-ray we didn't have imaging equipment so everything had to be done manually things were being destroyed didn't benefit anyone the technology has created tremendous efficiencies and the capability to move cog at the speed at which the trade community demands that it be moved in order to meet just-in-time delivery. The question about borderless borders, I may have a bias on that. So my immediately answer is no, it's not going to happen. Not in the near future, not in my lifetime. And I'll tell you why, because we tried it in the U.S. We tried it after 9-11. We wanted to do what was referred to as perimeter security of North America. So that once somebody enters into North America, whether it's Canada, Mexico, and the U.S., they can move more efficiently across the respective borders. And the reason being is even though we technically never shut the borders down, the level of examination was such that the wait times were just unacceptable. But what we quickly realized, you have to harmonize your immigration laws so that is the U.S. comfortable with whatever individuals Canada or Mexico are allowing into their borders, because then they're going to walk freely across the southern or the northern border. Harmonization of environmental protection requirements, Department of Transportation requirements, and the list of agencies go on. And my only knowledge about the challenges in the European Union is when we used to deal with them. a lot of times they would say publicly, oh, yeah, we're all one European community. But then when we dealt with the country separately, they're like, no, this issue of terrorism or this issue is our they used to use the word competency. So it's our competency and it addresses national security. So we don't have to adhere to the European Union. We have the unilateral authority to do what's best in our country. I don't think it's going to get resolved very easily, especially with things like pandemic and 
refugees and migrations. If you can't get complete and total agreement amongst the community that wants to have the borderless borders, it's going to be really hard. So we got, I mean, we do, we have to ask the e-commerce question. So you mentioned that you got these tons of packages moving around, which are, which are small and there's de minimis requirements. So a lot of them don't get checked. That's, that's where you put things you want to hide maybe, or things of high value. So does that, does, should that worry us? Does it worry you? Or is it basically just, just an evolution in the way the world works? Worry everyone. And I think it does worry Customs and Border Protection. They did a recent sampling of that environment. They went out and they sampled products in the e-commerce mail environment in the U.S. And they found a very double-digit level of counterfeit or some type of violation. So it's not as compliant as people had hoped for. Many of knew that there was going to be challenges in that environment because it's like in the tens of millions of packages every single day. But I think it goes back to the original question. Technology is going to have to be the answer. There's going to have to be technology with some type of machine learning or artificial intelligence that the big tech companies, you know, we could send a rover to Mars and we could send pictures back from there. We should be able to figure out how to screen in some automated way these small packages and determine its contents without having to manually open them all. And so we're hopeful that the machine learning artificial intelligence will assist with that. The, the other challenge, and people don't know it unless you're trying to combat smuggling or if you are a smuggler, but it's also an extremely efficient way to move your contraband from point A to point B. You could track it on your iPhone. You could track when it was delivered to sending it to. And I think we may have discussed previously that the bad actors, they do what are referred to as surveillance on patterns of life. So they know Al leaves his house every morning at eight o'clock. He may live in an okay neighborhood where packages aren't stolen. So they are left on the front door. And they know that he or his wife don't come home till five. So they have it delivered. And in the middle of the day, they're waiting for it. And it gets delivered to my address because that's what they use. And if the shipment gets interdicted, well, somebody's going to come and want to investigate me, not them. But if it gets delivered, then they just take it off my stoop. And that's done. That's that's how the bad actors think. So trying to combat that, how to address that. I'm trying to think which bad actor. So in Geneva, I had a very small-sized tennis outfit delivered to my address. I'm wondering which bad actor. I found it and nobody claimed it. I'm wondering which bad actor was smuggling. Sounds like a personal issue. Are you dressing up in small tennis outfits? Michelle tells us to bring in relatable content. I wanted to bring my own life into this. That escalated quickly. Anyway, speaking of things that show up at your doorstep unannounced, Al, what is the weirdest thing that you've ever seen when stopping someone or something at the border? Probably the most ingenious, we'll go with that, ingenious, because as I was an inspector, so not only trying to detect narcotics on people's body, it was also those that smuggled or inserted narcotics. So you mean in their body, not on their person, in their person. So when you tell that to people the very first time, most are a little shocked, but most want to hear the details. Keep going. It's amazing. It's like, really? People actually swallow narcotics or do something else with it to try to conceal it. But I'll say the most ingenious, and we always used to say, we, we catch the stupid and, and the greedy. And for this case, somebody was bringing in numerous coconuts, 
these coconuts had the husk on it. And because they were slowly bringing in so many, and you could buy coconuts in the U.S., by the way, we broke one open. And what they had done is they took the coconut, they removed some of the husk with the fiber, then they made a perfect hole into the, the hard outer shell of the coconut. They took all the meat out of the coconut. They packed in marijuana. And then they took, now I'm dating myself, 35 millimeter film canister, and they filled it up three quarters of the way with water and then put that in the middle and then finished putting more marijuana in it, put the piece of the shell back on, but then like spread glue, I guess, and then put the fibers on it. So you couldn't see where the coconut had been carved into. And when you pick the coconut up, they put enough marijuana in it. So it kind of was the exact weight. And then when you shook the coconut, that water in the film canister, because it was only three quarters of the way, you heard the water shake as well. So it was actually, they replicated what a coconut would look like, feel like, even shake like to conceal the narcotics. And you shake it all up. That was it. Another thing I wanted to know is why is the TSA always opening my luggage? Can you find Am I on a list? Maybe that's the excessive, maybe the excessive body oil that you're bringing that's, in. That's, that's hair product. That's hair. It's got to be below like four ounces. I mean. This, this hair does not stand up on it by itself. There's like six pounds of, of wax in here. Well, that must be it because I don't know many people who consistently get examined by TSA, but there is a, a redress process. So, so you're not the only one. You're not the only one that's getting examined continuously, but they've always let you go, right? They never kept you from boarding a plane. Yeah, yeah. I've never had the white glove service as of yet, so that's good. So we like to watch, we've got a land border right around Geneva with France. We like to watch the things people try to bring across. One of the recent ones was a 60 kilos of spring roll. So, I mean, they didn't hide them, I guess, that well. 60 kilos is a lot. And we also, there was one where somebody smuggled in dried, dried bats, which I guess can be a delicacy. Any, any stuff like that? I mean, people trying to bring, you know, across these land borders or people trying to bring spring rolls or, I mean, meat is the is the big hot item on our border. Uh, there was also an operation where they had a, they had a storage locker full of Portuguese products, ham, wine, cheese, bread, which there was a big bust. And uh, we're pretty sure these things are not destroyed. Well, that's kind of interesting you say that. Many people feel that way. And I will tell you, it does get destroyed. But many people believe that the inspectors or the agricultural inspectors bring it into the back and then eat it or bring it home. So I had a woman who was absolutely convinced of that. And she had about 50 mangoes. And to ensure that that was not going to happen, while her bag was open on the inspection belt, she bit into and spit out the piece in, in the bag of every one of those 50 mangoes to ensure that those mangoes were not going to be eaten by the U.S. government officials. Well, little did she know that we just nibbled around the edges of that bite. <laughs> exactly. So all this trade and technology is, is really leading up to this, and that is Listeners will know that you're from Queens, New York. So we're both native New Yorkers, despite what Rob says many times. So what I'd like to know is how many times in your life have you been to Staten Island? And if so, why? Probably been more 
times to Staten Island than many because we had I had an uncle who lived there. And now I'm really dating myself because we had to get there over the ferry. The Verrazano Bridge had not been built yet. And Artie's saying, this guy is really old. He's a lot older than I thought he looked. And driving back and forth to New York, as we discussed earlier, to get off the Jersey Turnpike, to get to Queens or Brooklyn, you got to go through Staten Island. All roads lead to Staten Island. As our listeners know, Staten Island is the place where dreams go to die. Yes. I mean, actually, it is very residential. I won't say there's many industries there, so I don't think anybody's commuting into Staten Island to work. And it also sits right there off the water. You can also smuggle stuff since it is a coastal community, coconuts, what have you. How would you characterize Staten Island? I mean, a lot of our listeners have not been, so would you say it's a nice place to visit? Staten Island is actually where all the cops and firemen and EMT workers in New York City are all located, actually, it just seems like. It's true. That's true. They all seem to gravitate towards there. I don't know if it was years ago, maybe the cost of houses might have been a little less than right outside of Manhattan in Brooklyn or Queens. They're going to put a statue up of me on Staten Island for putting it on the map with this podcast. Is that where you were born and raised on Staten Island? I was. I was born and raised. So did I describe it accurately? Pretty good. You forgot all like the, the Goodfellas and the mob references. I think most people know that. Al, I think that about does it for our interview. We're really happy that you could uh, take some time out to join us. I think it was a super interesting discussion, Mets references aside. I think I learned a lot. I'm sure Rob has been taking notes diligently on the the coconut smuggling business. (laughs) It's definitely good for people to know that customs and borders are not busting our chops for the fun of it. It is actually a job that is quite important and carries a lot of weight. Yes, no, absolutely. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to spend this time with you. So let's go right into this week in local news, Artie. You wouldn't believe it unless you lived in Geneva or really anywhere else because everything's local. All news is local. That's correct. We've got a couple of big uh, critical news updates we wanted to give you. But first, I wanted to ask you about that, that Jeff Bezos we were mentioning earlier. What do you think of him going to space? I think it's really exciting. It's amazing. I have some strong feelings. I, I feel like it's, 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 it's really interesting that we are giving so much discussion to Jeff Bezos going not even to outer space, to near space and only doing something that was done by Tom Hanks more than 60 years ago. Yeah, yeah. they went, okay. to, they went yeah. to real space, like outer space, not even inner space, you know, for a few seconds. The world is becoming like Elysium. So eventually Jeff Bezos will just be saying, I'm piecing out of here and thank you for taxpayers for funding this. Do you think we can find that jumpsuit on Amazon? Can I buy the jumpsuit that he was wearing? I want to buy that cowboy hat that he was wearing and burn it. I don't think you're that mad. I am pretty mad. Anyway, there's a couple of other things that's happened in uh, local news of the world. We talked about climate and so on. There's another sign that things are going quite badly. TikTok passed Facebook as the most downloaded app in the world. So I think this, among other things, might mean the future of work is actually the end of work. Because nobody's doing any work. They're all going to be scrolling. Watching cat But that, I mean, I'm thinking this might be not not the most objective, perhaps, view of the thing. And that's why we have to bring in our special commentator. Michelle. Michelle on this. Michelle, what does this mean for the world? Actually, I just got a text message. Michelle was going to comment, but she just wants to watch a couple more videos. She couldn't couldn't make it. (laughs) Okay, well, let me tell you what kind of videos I was watching on TikTok. Because you can talk about it, but if you haven't seen it, then how are you supposed to know? Have either of you downloaded it? I've actually deleted it. I thought TikTok was just a Kesha song. See, because otherwise I would have asked what side of TikTok you're on, but... 
Is it there's sides of TikTok? I had to delete it. I was kind of like looking at it a lot. I thought TikTok was unifying us. On my side of TikTok, there's a general strike going on, or there will be on October 15th. The idea really is that the workers, or at least the workers of the world, according to TikTok, which really means the workers in the U.S., are going to be striking for a bunch of things. About 4.9 million TikTok users basically just want higher wages, healthcare, maternity, paternity leave, all that good stuff. But I thought, but I thought TikTok was like endless videos of guys doing somersaults off bridges. Good to know what side of TikTok you're on, Rob. <laughs> Which side? Like, what are the two sides even? Ben Shapiro and everyone else. There's like a million sides to TikTok. And the idea is that the app kind of figures out exactly who you are in 2.5 seconds and puts you on the side that belongs to you. Oh, because I never interacted with it. Does it even know, even if I don't? Like, I didn't like anything. I wasn't sure how to. I mean, you don't need to like anything. If you scroll faster or slower, it's it's going to know. Listeners, oh, if, wow. if the listeners think this is going bad, that they should see Rob <laughs> trying to send an email. <laughs> no, email, I, I've mastered an email from, from the mid-90s. I type fast. You type loudly. Yeah, both. You're pounding the... I learned on a typewriter. What do you want? You had to push hard. Tell us some about these intrepid customs folks, Rob. Yeah, TikTok had to be suspended in nearby uh, border between France and Switzerland because our customs folks were at work again, protecting us. It's a true story. I'm glad that our local paper was able to report on it. There were two young fellows of 21 and 23 parked at a customs post. It was un unmanned at the time, and they were exchanging snakes. Is it a euphemism of sorts? No, they were exchanging snakes. I, you're probably going to say something hilarious. Ha ha. Yeah, it was a violation of the CITES convention. These are endangered species and cannot be traded. So the, the first, the 21-year-old from France, had two boas, a constrictor imperator, Colombien, and a boa Salomon. Funnily enough, both names of uh, previous Roman emperors. <laughs> the second one had some had two uh, boa constrictor imperators and uh, two crawl K boas and even a Bruce. royal python. Sounds like a slippery situation. <laughs> so, in fact, they were, they were, of course, apprehended. They were both sent to their respective sides of the border, the French and uh, Swiss side, and both were ordered to keep their snakes at home pending a decision of the customs services. Well, folks, that about wraps up this week's episode brought to you by Titanium and Artie's 22nd birthday. Not necessarily in that order, but okay. We'd like to thank our guest, Al Gina, for talking to us about the real story behind customs and, of course, his experience with the Isle of Staten. That's right. This is becoming a running theme, Staten Island. I like it. We're putting it on the map. Staten Island's plating. Yeah. It's not just a place where you dump dead mafia bodies. We also want to thank Michelle for helping you produce this episode. And also don't forget to download all of our episodes if you haven't listened to them already and subscribe to make sure you catch our next episode coming out very soon. Rob also suggests making a playlist, lighting a candle, taking a bath, and just going to town. 